If you are looking to elevate your leadership and drive your nonprofit forward, I invite you to subscribe to the Successful Nonprofits newsletter. Every week, I curate exclusive shareworthy content that sparks inspiration, innovation, and conversation. From the latest trends to timeless advice, the weekly email newsletter is your all-access pass to a treasure trove of resources. But receiving the newsletter is not just about staying informed. It's also about getting our best content first. Subscribers get first access to our newest downloadable templates designed to propel your leadership and amplify your impact. And that's not all, my friend. We are constantly working on new ways to support you and your mission. So as a subscriber, you'll get updates on our latest projects, opportunities to participate in surveys, and a say in the topics that we tackle next. You will essentially get me as a consultant, coach, and confidant in your inbox, ready to help you navigate the challenges of nonprofit leadership. So if you're an executive director, board chair, or a nonprofit leader who believes in making a difference, join me as a newsletter subscriber. Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. And today, we are going to be talking about communication strategies with Michael Hamill Romali. It is essential that nonprofits have strong and effective communication strategies. How we communicate impacts and affects our staff, our board, our standing in the community, our fundraising, and ultimately our clients. Now more than ever, communication is key. We are living in unprecedented times and it is essential that as an organization, you have a way to really communicate to your community and your constituents what you're doing, how you can help them, and get your message across. I have to share with you real quick how I met today's guest. So obviously, I've got a podcast, it's this one, and I get a lot of pitches for podcast guests. I mean a lot of pitches. I would say in any given week, I typically get five or six podcast guest pitches. And I pride myself because I always respond. Even when the same PR person emails me four times about the same guest and I've responded three other times, I will still respond. Although typically the fourth time, I will get a little catty and forward the prior response to them. Well, Michael approached me about a podcast guest that I was not interested in. Now, that's not too terribly surprising because honestly, typically I turn down about nine out of 10 prospective podcast guests. But at the same time, I was really intrigued by the way that Michael pitched it. It was such a good pitch, even though I was not interested in the guests, just not a good fit for the show. It was such a good pitch and it was so well written that I'm like, I need to check this person out. So I go up to the person's website and first of all, my very first glance at the website, I thought, I got to have this person on the podcast. Now that's someone who clearly has put a lot of thought and intentionality into their website. And then I started to read it. Yeah, I know, listeners, that sounds bad. I did not even read the website before I thought I have to have this person on it. As I started to read it, I have to tell you, my podcast jowls were salivating. I'm like, oh my gosh, I love the way this person approaches the world and approaches the work. So 
pretty much then instead of just my custom, and by the way, I kind of have a template that I use to say thanks, no thanks. I had to really modify that template and say, Michael, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't think this is a, a good guest for us, but I think you, you're the meat and potatoes of a great episode. So we got to get you on the podcast. So we went back and forth a little bit about it. And after a little arm twisting and wrangling, I'm so excited that we got Michael on the podcast. So Michael has got a ton of media, PR, communication experience with nonprofits. His website mentions everything from report writing to issue campaigns and everything in between. And again, when you visit his website, at the end of this episode, I'm going to give the URL. When you visit his website, it just makes you want to read more. It is the definition of a great website. So with this is the intro, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. My my brain is about to explode from all that like positive feedback. I'm just, I, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I will share with you almost every PR person or firm that pitches me, I'd routinely go and look at their website because sometimes I'll think of maybe they have other clients that I'm interested in or whatever, and their websites are kind of a yawn, or it's really clear that it's just such a template in WordPress, like PR firm consulting template. And they just put their name in it and their picture on it and boom, they were done. That was not your website. It really, really sucked me in. So I wanted to launch our conversation with a question about the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. I know that you're on their board. I know that you have been heavily involved. And I also know that just as New York City has been hard hit by COVID-19, the restaurant and hospitality industry has been doubly hard hit. So if I am a betting person, you reworked some communication strategies as COVID-19 was hitting. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So it has been a just bonkers five, six months. So Restaurant Workers Community Foundation is a young organization. We launched in September 2018. Very modest goals. We are an all-volunteer organization. The reason why I'm associated with Restaurant Workers Community Foundation is because my husband works in the restaurant business. He is the co-founder of the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation. And one of his colleagues who wanted to start it with him um, had this idea and no experience in nonprofits. And they came to me for advice. And so I've been involved from the very beginning. And when we got to January of 2020, looking at, out on this great year with a booming economy and thinking about all the systemic you know, problems in the restaurant industry. We're focused on wage issues, career ladders, sexual harassment, fair treatment of immigrants, mental health and substance abuse issues, all these things that are really endemic in the restaurant uh, industry. March came along and our board met in emergency session on March 14th. I was on a Sunday by Zoom, technology, and decided to establish a COVID relief fund. So we announced it the next day. On the very next day, we moved very nimbly. I think this is part of our success. And I think the other thing to know is that our organization is made up of 20 volunteer board members who do the bulk of the work. We're a working board. And we have some amazing communications folks on that board. We had in, in January, one of our board members had stepped up to chair the communications committee, Carolyn Hatchett, who had been a major writer at um, Star Chefs, which is a kind of like an online media organization that 
is focused on the restaurant industry, and she had a huge number of contacts. The president of our organization, my husband, John DeBerry, is um, a former editor of the Food and Wine Cocktail book. And so he, you know, had a lot of contacts at a whole bunch of media organizations. And one of their volunteer communications folks is was kind of like in the firmament of the communications apparatus of Momofuku Restaurant Group. So we had some people who are really, really well connected in the food media business. And when we decided to, our board gave us the mandate to launch this COVID relief fund, we had various people who knew my husband and knew that he'd started this organization asking, just as we were setting this up, what is Restaurant Workers Community Foundation doing about this? So we had a built-in audience of editors at Eater, at Food and Wine, at Bloomberg Eats, like all these major media companies coming to us and asking, what are you doing about this? And she said, hey, funny you mention it. We're starting a COVID relief fund. And we kind of got out of the gate before a lot of other organizations. And we did a lot of the stuff that you would typically expect. We wrote a press release. We, we had an established media list of organizations. We had a great website. And by the way, one of the things that I think that people decided they were going to entrust all this money that we have received in the past six months to our organization was in no small part because we have an incredibly diverse board that is half restaurant workers working in restaurants and half people with foundation and nonprofit experience. And I think that when people looked at who we were as individuals, you know, we have bios and headshots of every single person on our board, as well as all of our volunteers listed on our board. We have people who are like running the committees. And I think that people said, even though this organization is two years old, there's no other restaurant worker community foundation out there. And these people look pretty trustworthy. They like look what they know what they're doing. They have these committees on governance. They have these committees on this. So I think we looked like an organization that was trustworthy. We laid out a really clear mission for the fund, which was 50% is going to um, direct financial relief to out-of-work restaurant workers. 25% is going to existing nonprofit organizations that service restaurant workers with pro bono legal advice, food assistance, mental health assistance, et cetera. And another quarter is being set aside for a zero-interest loan program for restaurant businesses to get up and running again when the crisis is over. So I think the combination of like getting out of the gate really early, having clear established relationships in the food business in the food media world and having a really clear idea about what the money was going for by people that at least on paper look really trustworthy. And I think that we are really tried really hard when you look at our FAQ on our website, the COVID relief fund FAQ, we are extraordinarily transparent about every dollar that's come in, where it's come in from, where it's going out to. And we try to update it on a very regular basis so that people can say, oh, this week they're up to $7.1 million, which we're up to $7.1 million. So, All right, Michael, there is so much that I want to unpack there. Here's the <laughs> first thing I want to unpack. I'm going to go back a little bit, but We've got to talk about this. So you mentioned, yeah, the food and beverage journalists, they just, and editors, they just knew to call us up because we were the go-to for the industry. Now, I'm assuming that did not just happen. Yellow pages no longer exist. So it's not like someone pulled up the yellow pages and said, let's see, hmm, Restaurant Workers Foundation. No, not under the R. What do I look under? So I'm assuming that 
when you got started in 2018 and in 2019, you were building your media list and you were building media relationships. Oh, yes. The smartest thing I ever did, and I take full credit for this, um, when we were going to do our first gala event, and this is an organization that had zero dollars, so had no money to do an event. We did an event that we everything was contributed, like a corporate sponsor gave us their space, whatever. And we wanted to have a, some sort of speaker, but we had no real track record. The speaker that we reached out to was the editor-in-chief of Eater. So um, I don't know if all of your readers you know, pay attention to Eater, but like all across the country, Eater is like the insidery online publication. It's a Vox Media publication that you know, really co- has always covered the great food trends and like the restaurant trends and who's opening, who's closing. People in the restaurant industry follow it religiously. And we asked Amanda Clute to be our headline speaker for our big fundraising event. She was amazing. The president of Restaurant Workers Community Foundation and I went and met with her before she agreed to be our headliner. And we had just an amazing conversation about our work, our issues, and why we were focused on the issues that we were. She came in September, on our first anniversary of September 2019, which was less than a year ago, many lifetimes ago. Um, And Gabe just like hit it out of the ballpark and like not only did she give an amazing speech, she also bought like 20 different auction items, silent auction items. She like, I think she spent her entire like salary on our auction items. So God bless her. That relationship was incredibly important, not only because Eater had covered us before when we launched our organization, but has continued to cover us. It was that relationship at Eater and the relationship with the person who had been the editor of the Food and Wine Cocktail book, who is now like in charge of Bloomberg Eats and all that whole apparatus that my husband had a relationship with. Those two places basically gave us glowing coverage on the first day that we launched. And Eater did like this listing of relief funds. We were the top of the relief funds. Like everybody who was reading Eater saw that. That started a kind of waterfall cascade of like us being listed on every relief fund of every sort. You know, if it was like all the relief funds that include, you know, relief funds for, uh, I don't know, you name the sub interest of like relief funds for emergency workers, relief funds for, you know, um, domestic violence relief, whatever. We were always listed at the top of the restaurant worker focused funds. So those first two relationships that kind of like got the word out on that first day just like led to like a million like ABC News interview for our president. Here's the other thing that was wonderful. As everybody was losing their jobs in the restaurant industry, we had so many more volunteers with lots of time on their hands than we ever had before. And for one, you know, one of the stellar volunteers that we had, a woman named Rebecca Palkovics, who was a big, was a communications person for Momofuku Restaurant Group. She basically, like, all of her, like, restaurant client work was not happening. Like, nobody was, you know, using her. So she just has, for the past five months, she has worked her butt off for Restaurant Workers Community Foundation and her along with the chair of our communications committee have just been just practically full-time workers on this. I mean, in addition, they do have other client work and I know that they're working super hard on their other like paying gigs, but we've had 
a huge team effort that we have accomplished so much in like so many media interviews. That said, the media is definitely trailing off. It's not like it was like three months or so ago where people were just like really focused on the needs of restaurant workers. And we're currently like trying to get pick up on an op-ed, basically calling out Washington, D.C. for their lack of care for restaurant workers who are like who just lost their 600 per week supplemental funds. I mean, they're in dire conditions. Restaurants are not ever going to come back the way they were. And so we're trying to gin up media coverage now, now that people seem to have forgotten that restaurant workers are suffering. Not surprisingly, Michael, you said some things that have caused me some more questions. So first of all, love that. That was so strategic for you to have a highly influential editor give your keynote, especially a highly influential editor who's going to come and spend lots of money at your silent auction. And by the way, that is everybody's dream. Everybody wants the keynote that brings their checkbook with them. So congratulations, you hit a home run on that. So here are my questions, though. So as you're rolling this out, obviously, day one, you're getting some great press from two of the top media outlets in the restaurant industry, the food and beverage industry. Did you also put together a press release or were you primarily just working the phones and talking to editors and reporters? What were you doing? We did. We already had a, an existing like kind of target list of 40 media folks, media sources prior to the COVID relief fund that we were already communicating with. And it was a mix of like food press, philanthropic press, labor press. So that was a kind of mix of like established you know, we'd been sending them like, you know, we were a young organization that hadn't done that much at that point. You know, we weren't like bombarding them like, you know, monthly with non-news news. We really only were like sending out press releases when we are making grants. Like we made a big release when we, we made our first big round of grants at the end of 20, 2019. So we had that established list. And so we did a press release just announcing what the fund was, what you know, the 50% for direct financial assistance, 25% for nonprofits uh, doing crisis relief services and 25% for, you know, so laying it all out there in really transparent form. And basically, we just responded to any request that came back. And we got completely random requests. We were talking to anybody who wanted to talk to us for a good solid month. And I think everybody on our core communications team, and that includes the president who was the face of our organization for those months, were really incredibly, we were working 70, 80 hour weeks for the first month. We were just bedraggled. So we were just responding to any, anything that happened. One other thing I should mention that was a really smart communications thing that we did, and I can't believe that I got this far into the conversation without mentioning somebody really, really important. Okay, so we're an all-volunteer organization, but we got permission from our board when we had a successful grant fundraising year last year to spend $10,000 on a social media consultant, somebody to basically, the president and I did not have the time to constantly be on social media and monitoring and start having the kind of conversations on social media you really need to have to be, have it be effective. So we decided to hire somebody who do that. And we hired a person named Cassandra Rosario, who has her own consultant is communications consulting practice and she started working for us the week that we announced our covid relief fund so she was trial by fire and she 
well, first of all, the very next month, we like upped her contract. We doubled her contract the next month. And she and her team have just been unbelievably effective. We've used that social media conversation in so many ways. I mean, obviously there's a fundraising element. We are also, you know, using it to have, we started doing these RWCF talks where we are like helping the community of restaurant workers come together and hear about topics from like how to renegotiate your rent or like not pay your rent if you can't pay your rent and like what kind of communications you should have with your landlord, that kind of stuff, to mental health, how to deal with mental health issues in this era. I mean, you name it, we've been having those conversations. We've been using it in that way. But we've also been using it to, we knew that we had a a kind of deficit on our board in terms of representation on um, back of house workers. We have like a lot of restaurant workers, but we didn't have a dishwasher. We had a couple chefs, but that's a different person than, you know, like a line cook. Uh, And we wanted that voice. So we used our social media to call in early June for open, you know, volunteers and potential board members. And we've got a really wonderful response. We have just from that whole call, we've been interviewing people for the past two months. And we have just put one of those names out to our board to join the board. So we've probably been using just about every form of communication that you could possibly use. We are not on like some of the things. We're not doing TikTok, but everything else, I mean, and we're not on Reddit because we're not those people, but we are, you know, we're on Instagram very heavily. We basically started this crisis with 500 Instagram followers. I think, I don't know what we're up to now. We're, I think we're past I don't know if we're up to 10,000. We've significantly increased our Instagram following, our Twitter following, our Facebook following, and Facebook is also raising money for us. It's been, okay, I'll pause there because like, I don't want to overwhelm you. So this is the other thing that I want to ask you about. You talk about social media. Talk to me about the ways in which you involved the restaurant workers who were impacted to help you amplify your message? Well, a couple of ways. I mean, one of the earliest strategies that we pursued was we have such a wonderful, amazing, diverse array of volunteers. And so we used our social media to thank our volunteers and like really highlight what they were doing as a volunteer, really kind of personifying our organization. And, you know, it wasn't just the restaurant workers, I mean, we obviously focus heavily on shouting out the restaurant workers who are involved in our organization, but we also wanted to show that we have like nonprofit expertise. So chairing our grant making committee, we have Zach Lidoff, who is a consultant at Support Center for Nonprofits. We have Dita Jahedi, who heads our fundraising and governance committees, and she's at the Tao Foundation. I mean, we have just an incredible roster of people who have been giving so much of their time. So it's been really great to like, not just like the people who are like on the board, but show the pictures of people who have lost their jobs and they're spending their time volunteering for Restaurant Workers Community Foundation and what they've been doing, how they've been, you know, reviewing grant applications, or they've been like immersed in like the fundraising applications. We had a volunteer, uh, Steve Ali, who lost his job. He's up in, I want to say Syracuse or Rochester, up in upstate New York. And, you know, he was a back of house kind of person. And he, you know, volunteered, he wanted to be on the fundraising committee. And it was like a little bit odd that, you know, a person back of house wants to be on fundraising. It's a very specific ask. And we were like, okay, sure, but great. And he has been so 
amazing. He has been like basically the right hand to the committee chair and like does all of our like applications to major foundations now. He's so smart and giving him a shout out on Instagram is like my favorite thing. That is so cool and so awesome. All right. Now here's the other thing I got to ask you. You had mentioned that at this point, some of the media coverage is starting to wane. We all know the media kind of has a short attention span, even when they're really committed. You know, there's a news cycle and they chase that news cycle. So how is your communication strategy changing as the media is starting to move their attention to other things? Yeah. Well, as I said, we did start talking about creating this op-ed piece at the beginning of July, which we're now kind of shopping around. If it doesn't get picked up in the next couple of hours, we're actually going to put it out as a public statement and see if that gets us a little traction. So there's that. I mean, the other thing is our programmatic work is not static. So we have additional things to talk about. We're continuing the nonprofit grant making. We try to make announcements when we hit major milestones of fundraising. And we are moving towards launching a new fund that I cannot talk about right now because the board has not officially approved it. We will vote on it at our support September board meeting. So we'll have a new programmatic area to talk about. In the midst of all this, we created a restaurant manager's resource guide that helps people. And this is uh, the work of primarily of Rebecca Palkovics on our communications team. She put together in English language and then had it translated into seven other languages all from volunteer translators, mind you, because there's lots of like restaurant workers who are out of work who speak other languages, um, and put together this resource packet. It's nicely designed. It's really cute. Basically, helps restaurant managers know what information or where to direct their current or former employees who are asking them, how do I get, you know, unemployment? How do I find like health insurance now that I don't have a job? How do I do this? So it's like broken out, like, and it has a strong link to a lot of our program areas. Um, So we basically have been promoting the restaurant manager's resource packet at the same time that we are, have put out a call for people to join our restaurant manager's network. So People have been steadily been signing up for the Restaurant Managers Network. So we will soon have a nationwide Restaurant Managers Network that will help us kind of develop our work in the future and will be kind of, I hope, emissaries for, for all of our programmatic messaging. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. I really know that I need to wrap it up and take it to the off-the-map question, but there's a couple more questions I'm dying to ask you, Michael. I'm literally just dying to ask you. Here's the first one. If you were to ballpark, how many new donors has the foundation garnered over the last five months? Oh, God, well, almost all of our donors are new because like, you know, prior to March 15th, I think we had like board donors and three corporate donors at that point. So now we have, well, we've had, I think, 15,000 individual small donors through our website think I don't have my little you can double check my my numbers on our FAQ on our website and in terms of the funders I also do not have my spreadsheet of like all of our major donors right now but I mean it is like in the 500 to a thousand range so it sounds like for some of the lower level donors 15,000 somewhere around there and then 500 or a thousand really much much larger donors so 
And can I say something that, depending on the timing of when this airs, we just got a grant for $60,000 from the United Philanthropy Forum's Momentum Fund. They basically got a huge amount of funding from the Gates Foundation to help crisis relief funds kind of ramp up their capacity. And so in addition to that capacity grant, we will also be listed on this like Gates Foundation website where people can like go and like get a recommendation about what we're all about and why they should fund us. I was saying to um, a firm that I was um, interviewing earlier today, we've raised $7 million this year from because of the COVID fund. We will not raise $7 million next year. That is not going to happen. But I just believe based on my kind of back of the envelope estimate that it is totally realistic for us to like raise a million dollars next year. I feel we are in the, we will, if the board approves at our September board meeting, we will be hiring an executive director and a chief operating officer in by the end of the year. I am confident that we will have the resources that we need to support that level of staffing at minimum and really build out this organization for the long-term future. We have a proof of concept. Now, we're like not even a two-year-old organization, but we have had hundreds of amazing donors who are not stupid. Like, they do their homework. Like, we've, like, gotten huge corporate gifts where they have put us through the ringer of, like, you know, due diligence and signing of contracts. And they believe in what we're doing. And I just know based on the list that we now have of people who have said they believe in us and have put their money where their mouth is, that we can definitely be a long-term sustainable organization at a very high level. And so you just pitched me the softball for what I'd planned to kind of be my last question before the off the map question. So I appreciate that. And I can't actually speak for you, but I'll say, I'll share with you. I've never played softball. So it's a miracle that I was able to hit it when you threw it to me or catch it or whatever I'm supposed to do when you throw it to me. But so as an organization, you have literally gone from very few donors to thousands of individual donors and hundreds of corporate and foundation and other institutional donors. What is your communication plan to keep those donors engaged so that you will be that multi-million dollar organization in the future? Well, I mean, there's general communications that I've talked a lot about and then the individual donor communications. I mean, honestly, our database situation is not what it should be. We did not use the donor management software program that I wish we had chosen. And we really have not had the staffing to input the information that we should have. I mean, I think, well, we will soon invest a small amount of money in a development, a part-time development assistance to go back through all the thousands of emails that we did from March to now to make sure that every single funder, potential funder, every conversation that may or may not have gone somewhere gets into our system so that we can loop back around with them. We've been like really tracking the finances pretty well. And like of all the promised funds that we have, we have six, seven point, almost 2 million in, in um, commitments and basically 6.6 something actually in our bank account. So there's relatively little in terms of like money that we've been promised that hasn't come in yet. But there are some and we need to loop back with those people first. And, you know, we need a whole system for doing that. So, I mean, 
there's that kind of like retail level development communications work that needs to be done. But I really think that like there's some of the core of what we'll be doing in the coming six months will be making some decisions about this new fund that we want to launch and really talking more clearly about the work that we have been doing. I I cannot believe we got this far in the conversation that I have not mentioned my great love affair with newsletters and putting a ton of content into newsletters. More so much that you like feel overwhelmed with it. Like I have a long history of people telling me, I can't read all the content in your newsletter. No matter where I work, it has always been, you're putting, I feel overwhelmed by all the content in your newsletter. Some of the stuff that we'll be talking about in the coming months will be a newsletter, but I think that there has to be some like real special communications to funders, especially the major institutional funders that are now seeing this proof of concept that could in 2021, when foundation budgets are kind of reset, I think this year is kind of like a bit of a lost cause. So when people are thinking at the beginning of 2021, like where we do it going with our strategy, we're there with a story about we did resource managers packet. We have a research, a growing restaurant managers thing. We're doing all this work in racial justice. We have like two like, you know, amazing staff. And it'll be about these kind of programmatic things that we have in place. I will share with you that I love that you are focusing on development and getting your CRM in place and all of that, because those are going to be resources so well spent for really cultivating and engaging your donors so that they're with you from year to year. And, you know, they're all not going to walk with you from year to year, but gosh, if just two thirds of them do, you're a huge success. One other thing that's really important that we'll be talking about is that we also invested money in June in bringing on a person named Nick Campbell, A. Nicole Campbell, who runs an organization called Build Up Philanthropy Advisory Group. Uh, And she's worked for um, New York Community Foundation, for Open Society Foundation. She's worked for the D'Alio Foundation. And she specializes in kind of understanding an organization's like institutionalization and legal needs. And she has done a really amazing analysis of like all the things that we need to to become, to move out of our infancy and to become like a healthy, happy adult uh, organization. And we will be using that report as a kind of an endorsement of where we are and where we need to get to and why we need the resources we need to get there. That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. All right, Michael, got to ask you the off the map question because, well, we never let any guest go. Even, even when we're running over, we never let any guest go without the off the map question. So I understand that you are one of the few people on the planet that has a cocktail named after them. Well, I do have a cocktail named after me. I don't know if I could say I'm one of the few people because I'm sure that there's, if I, my husband has a cocktail book out right now that I'm sure he will probably would point to all the various cocktails named after people. So I probably correct that in advance. But um, yes, so coincidentally, I um, was born on the day of the Stonewall riots, the Stonewall uprising, we're calling it now, the riots. Um, so I was born June 27th, 1969, which is the day the riots started. Usually they observe on the 28th, but like it started on the night of the 27th. Anyway, so I was born on the day of the Stonewall riots. I, that makes me old. I am 51 years old. And 
my husband, when we were, um, when I turned 40, he was working at the uh, world-renowned cocktail bar PDT, which stands for Please Don't Tell for the Uninitiated. It's like the kind of Uber speakeasy where you go in through a hot dog joint and you go through a a, um, phone booth and then you're in this little back bar. Very famous. So I had my 40th birthday party at PDT, and for that party, he created this drink to honor me. It's called the Stonewall Baby, and it is now in his book called Drink What You Want. So you can get the recipe for the Stonewall Baby in the book Drink What You Want. So, Michael, I love that you're pitching your husband's book. Good for you. Good for you. You're a good husband. I have to share with you, before I do this outro, I have to share with you a quick story. And you know, listeners know, you may not know this, Michael, but most listeners know that I every now and then talk about my husband on the podcast with the assurance that even though we get eight or 9,000 downloads a month, he will not be among any of them. So I can say whatever I like about him and know he's not going to hear it. So about, I guess, five or six years ago, I had a book come out and I remember when it came out, and you know, when you have a book come out and your husband's probably experienced this, you're always like, okay, you know, what's the first review on Amazon and what's this and what's that? And so the first review review on Amazon was actually one of my best friends from graduate school, beat my husband to it. And so I could not help but go into the living room and be like, honey, I just have to let you know that you've already lost out on the first position on reviews. You should really work on getting in this queue quickly. So good for you. You're pitching the book. Better than I did. I haven't even thought to like review his book. I mean, he had like an amazing review for Publishers Weekly and like all these like actual, I mean, Dave Chang from Monfuku like blurbed his book jacket and like all these other famous people. So he does not need like me at all. I promise you, you're the most important person in his life. So if you review it, you might be surprised. You might very well be surprised. Michael, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your passion and your expertise and, frankly, your authentic self. I love it. I love it when guests come on and they're like, I'm bringing my authentic self, so good for you. Listeners, if you want to learn more about Michael and the work he is doing, and honestly, he is doing some incredible work. Interestingly enough, we spent our time today talking about his volunteer work, but the work that he does for clients is incredible. Make sure you check out his website at hamelramalli.com. There, you can read more about Michael, his services, and his process, particularly his dedication to sticking with his clients through the execution of their plans. And you know, I'll be frank and say, there's a lot of consultants out there that will put together a plan for you, but after that, they dash out the door. And if it doesn't work out, they say, oh, well, must have been the organization. I wrote a great plan. So... I will share with you, Michael sticks around with his clients and helps make sure they get that plan done. You can also, by the way, if you're interested in learning more about the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation, you can also visit their website, restaurantworkerscf.org. And listeners, there are many reasons why you should visit the website. Obviously, maybe to make a contribution, but also you know that there is going to be a pro behind their upcoming email newsletter. So if you want to see how an email newsletter is done right, you need to go to restaurantworkercf.org and sign up for their newsletter. And if it's not already happened, I bet you by the time this rolls out, there'll be a link to sign up, even if the newsletter is not yet rolling out. So Michael, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. 
All right, listeners, if you missed those URLs because you were checking out Michael's cocktail recipe, then don't worry about it. Start fixing your drink and head on over to our website at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. There you will find those URLs along with a transcript and stamped highlights of our conversation. You will also find a link to my email. I love getting feedback from you. I respond to every email that I get. It might take me a day or two, but I do respond to every email I get. Another great way to connect with me is, surprisingly enough, my email newsletter, which is funny because Michael was just talking about the importance of that. Each issue is packed with useful updates, information, and tools that you can use in your nonprofit. And believe it or not, the email newsletter, when you hit reply, it will come to me personally. It won't go to Lexi. It won't go to a dead letter inbox. And I respond to everybody who replies. Again, it might take me a couple days, but I do respond. Now, while you're on the website, also make sure you check out our tactical planning services. Let's face it. We are in a crisis. Most nonprofits are faring relatively well this year. It's next year that's going to be the tough year when there's no stimulus, when there's long-term unemployed people who maybe could give something this year but are not going to give something next year. So now is the time for you to be thinking about your tactical planning. If you're trying to figure that out, reach out to me at SuccessfulNonprofits.com. I want to have that conversation with you. And also, one last quick promo Recessions are stressful. Pandemics are stressful. This election is stressful. So if you are feeling overwhelmed right now, remember that you are not alone. There are a lot of nonprofit leaders just like you that are feeling overwhelmed. And as I've often said, dealing with feelings of being overwhelmed is a lot of what I end up working through as an executive coach. And for that reason, I'm going to be hosting a free webinar on Wednesday, October 14th. And you can sign up for the webinar at SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash make time. I will help you feel a little less overwhelmed at a time when it's really easy to feel that way. That, listeners, is our show for this week. I hope that you have gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.